holy God, you who are completely faithful and always unchanging, we look to you today. And in this room, there are a collection of people who are in the midst of transitions, some who are graduating or preparing to graduate, others who are transitioning into new homes, new jobs, some who are transitioning and preparing to be parents for the first time, some who are watching the transition of life move into death as they say goodbye to loved ones. And then there are those in our midst who don't know where exactly they're headed or what they are transitioning to, but they know something is ending, and it's stressful, maybe painful. And yet there are even those still who don't know that something is ending but are desperate to find something different, hungry for change, ready for transformation, ready for things not to be the way they have been. And that, too, can be a stressful place, an anxious place. And so in the midst of all of this that is churning, that is changing, that is about to change and that we want to change, we look to you who never changes. We look to you who is always faithful And we ask, good God, for the grace that we might know you wherever we find ourselves today, that we may know your presence and your peace, that you may faithfully guide our feet even if we don't know where we're going, that you may grant wisdom, discernment, clarity for decisions that are about to be made. We ask that you would continue to give us courage to walk the way of Jesus, even when it's difficult or confusing or just downright tiring. And we ask that as we gather in your presence and with one another tonight, that we would find strength from you and from one another. We ask, Lord, that you would make yourself known among us, that you would give us what we need what we can't supply and what we don't know how to supply for ourselves. And we ask this in the name and spirit of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. So I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, if you would. And if you don't have a Bible, I have friends with Bibles. I'm going to be reading out of the New Living Translation, and you just have to raise your hand and somebody will bring you a Bible. You're more than welcome to borrow it. Or if you don't have a Bible... You can just keep this as your own. The Gospel of Mark is in the back half of the New Testament, and if you can't find it, your Bible has a table of contents where you can just look it up. But we're going to look at what Jesus says about the Sabbath. So this is the Gospel of Mark chapter 2, starting with verse 23. And here at our church, we stand as we honor the reading of God's Word, so I invite you to stand as we hear this good news together. So hear the word of the Lord. One Sabbath, as Jesus was walking through some grain fields, his disciples began breaking off heads of grain to eat. But the Pharisees said to Jesus, Look, why are they breaking the law by harvesting grain on the Sabbath? Jesus said to them, 
Haven't you ever read in the scriptures what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He went into the house of God during the days when Abathar was the high priest, and he broke the law by eating the sacred loaves of bread that only the priests are allowed to eat. He also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. So, so the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Before you sit, I want to point something out. Prior to this text, there is a discussion going on about fasting. And then after that, Jesus heals on the Sabbath. This for us is the word of God for the people of God. And let us say together, thanks be to God. You may be seated. So last week, I told you a story about how as a young nine-year-old competitive swimmer, I, I I uh, qualified for the Junior Olympics in, in several events. I've got a picture of this to remind you. This is me. Look at that burst of blonde hair. So this was about when I was nine. And if you recall, one of the things that I said was that I qualified, but the only problem was, was that these three events were held on Sunday. And in our family, we didn't do competitive sports on Sunday. Now, my folks um, let me know early on that we observed the Sabbath on the Lord's Day, which was Sunday. We'd go to worship, and then we rest. We would rest, and it was a discipline that my family took seriously. But it wasn't actually until this Monday, the Monday morning, my, Monday morning, my day off, when I was at the gym actually working out, that the irony of this illustration, this example, dawned on me. Last Sunday, on a day when people came to church wearing their Oklahoma City Memorial Marathon t-shirts, and nearly a third of our congregation were sitting in these wooden chairs with sore feet and sore legs and sore buns, my great example about Sabbath was how we as a family observed it by saying, at our house, we do not do competitive sports. Sorry for that. I, I, I want to let you know, please believe me when I say that the irony was, it was lost on me. It was not a pastoral, a passive-aggressive attempt to manipulate anyone or to make anyone feel bad for running last Sunday. I wasn't trying to give commentary. I wasn't trying to make judgments about that particular activity. And it was not a sneaky way to say, shame on you for running today. There I was on my day off, my Sabbath, and I too was working out when it dawned on me. I was doing something physical. But I was also reminded there on that Monday, in the fact that the, that the, you know, the irony was lost on me, that, that that really is the point of Sabbath. It's when the, when the irony is lost on us, because Sabbath isn't about shame and it isn't about guilt. It's not to manipulate or coerce or demean, especially as Jesus of Nazareth saw it. It was to set people free. It was to celebrate, and it was to enjoy life, and it was even to heal. And I felt like on Monday morning, when I was thinking about this sermon, I was in good company because the irony was so lost on me, as it was to the leaders that Jesus was speaking to in this text. 
If there's anything that I would like you to see, is that it is this, that in Jesus, Sabbath is this art form. It is not a list of rules. In fact, it's an invitation to practice the way of Jesus with intentionality on a regular basic, uh, on a re- regular basis, so that the tragedy that is our lives might be rescripted into something that is really, really good. Last week, I told you that there was a lady in my church growing up that said that Christians don't do things like competitive sports on Sundays because if Jesus died on the cross for your sins, then the least you could do is suffer for him for one day. Well, the Sabbath, the Sabbath is not like what the lady in my church suggested. It is, it's not a day of suffering, It's not a day of woes. It's a day that's supposed to help you feel alive, to feel God's presence, to feel the God within you, to establish deeply wonderful neighborly relationships, to engage in connections, and to participate in in new life, and to be aware of and observe the resurrection that is happening all around you. This lady, along with me, fits really, really well into this text today. Because in our text here in Mark, the Sabbath has become this day of rigid discipline and of suffering. And in all fairness, there's a reason for that. Mark paints a picture of these religious leaders called Pharisees as crotchety old rule followers. And I've learned that when I encounter someone that acts like a crotchety old rule follower, there's usually a reason they're that way. Life has beaten them down somehow. So in Mark's gospel, Jesus is already in hot water from the beginning. So Jesus engages in this doctrinal debate with a group of religious leaders, and they're armed and they're educated and they're discussing the disciplines uh, that they need in order to live a, 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 a good life. And when the leaders ask Jesus about the Sabbath, when they ask him why the rules aren't being followed, which is what I pointed out beforehand, before the text we read, why the rules aren't being followed and why the disciples don't fast and why it looks like they're working, Jesus springs forth with a crazy statement to reveal both his identity and his purpose. It was like Jesus told him his, his personal mission statement, and it, it goes like this. The Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Now, so you know, if you didn't know this, this statement is terribly offensive to those leaders. It's even more offensive than Jesus' Sabbath practices. First of all, Jesus has given himself a nickname, the Son of Man, and it causes everyone to grab their chest and to gasp. Second of all, Jesus essentially says, I'm the Lord. I'm God, I'm your God, and I'm in charge of the Sabbath, and I am going to do on the Sabbath what I want to do. Now, they must have been thinking, Sabbath observance has been in place for thousands of years, and now here comes this snot-nosed punk. Who does he think he is? Now, some people think that that gospel writers like Mark, they give Jesus this title, the Son of Man, to show that Jesus had this human side. And they gave him the title, the Son of God, to show him that he had this God side. 
But, um, but our basic doctrine, which we call Christology, is not that at all. Jesus didn't have a human side, and Jesus didn't have a God side. The gospel writers, the apostles, the early church fathers and the mothers, and all of the church throughout 2,000 years have agreed that Jesus isn't kind of part human, part God, but rather Jesus is fully human and fully God. He's not part one, part the other. So this title, Son of Man, that's not what that means, that Jesus is like a human. Instead, the title comes from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, and it has cosmic messianic, futuristic implications. So after the exodus from Egypt and the arrival into the land of promise, I've got a picture here for you. This is, this is one I took. I was there. Just kidding. <laughs> so as they go into this land of promise... A millennium before, a thousand years before Jesus of Nazareth, the people of God experienced prosperity and they experienced good living. They lived in a land that they called a land that flowed with milk and honey. It's another way to say they had everything they need. Every, everywhere they looked was evidence both of the presence and the providence and the prosperity of God. So each week they set, that, they set aside a holy day a holiday. Every single week they had a holiday to celebrate. And and they were supposed to rest and celebrate and worship and care for their neighbor. So they they quit work and they shut down the business at sundown on Friday evening and they celebrated and they rested and then they would sing and they would worship and and they would carry on dancing all the way through sundown on, on Saturday night. And their whole week, all the other six days, pointed towards this one holy day, this holiday. Now, in the center of their celebration was this place. It was a sacred place. It was Solomon's temple. And it was here in this temple where God's provision and God's goodness and God's mercy and God's justice, well, where God would be worshiped. And they had this temple because it was this visual reminder that God's cosmic purposes would be realized in real time. It was the connecting piece. The temple was this connecting piece that, uh, that, that stood between the here, the real world, and the heavenly, the cosmic God activity. So these ancient people saw that time, Sabbath, was holy And the place, temple, was sacred. Sabbath, holy, temple, sacred. Another way to say it was they saw the world like this on their Sabbath in their temple. That God filled and was present in in everything. Now with this one-two punch, God in the holy and God in the sacred, the, the Sabbath... And the temple filled their hopes. These two things represented God's, God's desires for them. And they thought to themselves, well, if God is good to us now, what might be God be preparing for us later? By the way, this is the question that many of us have been asking as we've been as we've been preparing and as we have moved into this sacred place. And we gather on the Lord's day. If God is this good to us now, what is it that God might be preparing 
So the Sabbath and the temple, time and space, the holy and the sacred, this representation of God's promise. There was only one thing missing in this formula, and it was a messianic figure. One to make all this stuff happen. And the prophet Daniel, you know Daniel, the one that was in the lion's den, promised a long time ago that there would be one who would come, and he called this messianic figure the son of man. Daniel, a long time ago, before Jesus even was around, said this. He said, as my vision continued through the night, Daniel had a vision. I saw someone like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one who is God, and he was led into his presence. He was given authority and honor and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It would never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. Sabbath, the holy time, temple, the sacred of space, being ushered in, the goodness of God being ushered in by the Son of Man who is the messianic figure the one who connects all of the things together. And according to Daniel, this one, the Son of Man, would be the final catalyst of everything you've dreamed about. The Jews had a word for this. They called it shalom, peace, prosperity, no war. Everybody has enough to eat. Everybody has a place to live. Everybody has all that they need. Health care for everyone. All that we've desired. All that we've needed. Shalom. He would heal broken bodies. He would ease their wounded souls. He'd be their final healing when the Son of Man comes, according according to Daniel. God's true rule and reign will be established here on earth as God already reigns in the heavens. And they thought it's just a matter of time. But then something terrible happened. The people got civilized. They started setting things up. They served themselves. Their agendas aligned with nationalistic propaganda that promised prosperity. They longed for national security rather than care for their neighbors. And as Scott Daniels said, they had gotten out of Egypt, but but the Egypt, apparently Egypt hadn't gotten out of them. They They weren't merciful. They did not love justice. They did not walk humbly with their God. They were abusive to their neighbors, and they ignored the commands of God. So a national tragedy occurred. In 587 B.C., a powerhouse, Babylonian leader named Nebuchadnezzar led a foreign army and seized Jerusalem where the temple was. And he drove the people of God into exile, and he finally destroyed their sacred temple in 586, and along with their sacred temple went their hopes and their dreams. And the people of God in 586 B.C., 500 years, almost 600 years before Jesus, were now back in slavery. Their temple was destroyed, and it didn't seem that the Messiah was coming anytime quickly and now with their temple destroyed, their God silent, the thing, that they, the thing that they held on to for dear life, the only thing they could hold on to was Sabbath. So each week with 
military-like discipline on the Sabbath. They would retell their story, the story of Egypt, the story when they were in slavery, and then they would retell their story, including the destruction of the temple, because they believe that maybe, just maybe, if we keep on retelling this story and the constant retelling of it, we could reclaim hope. Now, when the temple was destroyed in 586, it was devastating. And it was devastating for generations. Generation after generation after generation suffered when this happened. And this story, their story, was not just, was not about joy any longer, but remembering when they would remember the Sabbath was done with a type of mourning, and it would be done with a type of fasting. And they would say, we don't do those kinds of things on the Sabbath. The beating that they took from the Babylonians resulted in this, in this somber, rigid, disciplined outlook. It was difficult for them to pull themselves out of it. So rabbis came along and they said, it, it, it is unlawful to be sad on the Sabbath. They had to institute a law to celebrate, but even then, the rabbis had to make allowances. Some tears, you just couldn't hold them back. The rabbi said, some tears are acceptable because sometimes you just can't help it. I I could be wrong, but I I sense that what is going on here in the psyche of those who are engaged, I sense that what is going on here in the psyche of those who are engaging with Jesus is is just this. There's there's always a backstory to someone's life. As my friend Doug Sample says, people do what makes sense to them because they carry a story into the conversation that they have with you. Their history informs them. Their story shapes them just as it does us. And misery loves company. And it was curious because Jesus wasn't miserable. In fact, Jesus was moving and and living in this honest and celebratory way. And and they asked him, it it was so hard to comprehend, they asked him why his disciples were pulling grain on the Sabbath. That looked a lot like labor, And then they would ask him why his disciples don't fast like John's disciples do. That seemed like forgetting. And they were even so blind to to his identity and purpose that they asked him why he went about doing miraculous healings on the Sabbath. That seemed like work. And it seems when when I read it at first as if when they ask Jesus the question, he pops off with a remark, guys, seriously, seriously. Humans are not made for, humans are made for the Sabbath, not the other way around. Excuse me, hum, sorry, humans are not made for the Sabbath, the Sabbath is made for humans. And you know what? Jesus, he can't fit into our normal ways of thinking and our normal ways of living. When he says this to them, he flips everything upside down. It's like he gives them a verbal punch in the gut. And if this wasn't enough, he says, so the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. I I at first think he's being a smart aleck, but after reading, now here's what I've decided. Jesus isn't being sensitive. Do you know what he's doing? He is re-scripting their story. 
whether these men know it or not, or whether Mark's first readers knew it or not, or whether you know it now or not after you've heard it, Jesus has actually given these guys a gift. So think with me for a second here. Here in Mark, and then in the other three Gospels, Jesus refers to himself as Lord of the Sabbath. In John and in other places, Jesus, is pro- Jesus promises that even though the temple might be destroyed, it will be built back up again. Here in Mark and in the other Gospels, as well as Paul, James, Jude, the writer of the Hebrews, John, the re- re- uh, revelator, the prophets of old like Daniel and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Habakkuk and others, they all say that there is one coming. Here is what I think Jesus is saying. He's saying, All you have been looking forward to on your Sabbath and in your Sabbath practices is standing right here in front of you. I am your rest. I am your peace. When you think that the temple is no more and God is silent, I am here. When hope escapes you and it seems far away, it's closer than you think. I am the Sabbath, I am the temple, and I am the messianic expectation. I'm all three of these things here right before you wrapped up into one. It's like Jesus says, there is no reason to fast or to mourn anymore or worry anymore. Time to take a day off from that. This is a day of new life. This is what we call resurrection, and that always overrides the command to be too serious or to fast. The one, two, three combo is standing right in front of you. It's a long-awaited promise realized. It's a cosmic reality that is here in me. And as long as I'm here, there is this perpetual Sabbath that keeps going on and on and on. And as long as I'm here, it's always time for a party. I, he says, am your new way forward. I'm the holy of time, the sacred of space. I am the expectation of hope. I'm the party that you have all been wanting to have. And as a church, here we say, We want to walk the way of Jesus. We just committed ourselves to telling Ellis this story. This is a bit of an art form. And art, in my elementary, humble opinion, is a way just to see the world. It's a way to tell a good story. It's a way to show where we are going and where we have been. And those who are engaging with Jesus with their questions in this text definitely need their story rescripted. And so do we. Worship and rest is a way by which we rescript our story. The very word liturgy means practice of the people, and we practice so that we might be able to see, understand, and live into a really good story that is right in front of us. Each one of us has these personal stories. We have stories as Oklahomans, stories as Americans, as consumers, as individuals. These things have bent our imaginations in the wrong direction, our family narrative is a form of a story. The, the story, uh, the way we've been socialized is a form of our story. And, and liturgies come towards us in a variety of ways. Propaganda and advertising tries to rewrite our story via TV and social media as well as other outlets. But you need to know something. That script has failed. 
So in Jesus, we anticipate that our tragedies will be turned into comedies. That, that Sabbath, coming to worship, telling a new story is the way in which we participate in, in this God rescripting our stories. This is what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to unfold this story in front of these people, and he's trying to invite them into the story that God is longing for us to be a part of, and God wants, us to, wants to do with us. This is what the Son of Man offers to these leaders in Mark. And it's a gift offered on the holiest of days, the Sabbath. It's to be a day of celebration. The leaders don't see it. They're angry. And the irony is lost on them. And they think that Jesus has forgotten their tragic story and is making light of it because of the way he treats the order of things. Jesus doesn't want to live in contrast to their story. He wants to reform their story. And he's taking their tragedy and turning it into a comedy if they would let him. And that is exactly what he wants to do for us too. If we let him. Our stories have been bad. They're tragedies. But they don't have to remain tragedies. Because in each one of the Gospels, do you know what Jesus does after each discussion he has about the Sabbath? He heals. The tragedy is turned into a comedy. The one who is and makes time holy. The one who makes space sacred. The one who will come and has come and will come again to save us. The Son of Man rescripts our story. And he says this. He says that I am your joy. I am your forgiveness. I am your needs met. I am your freedom. I am your peace. I am your healing. And our tradition believes that as we participate in a sacrament like the Lord's Supper, our stories can be rewritten. This thing that happens here that we do every single week, this is a picture of invitation to have our stories rewritten. This is what God is doing. He's rewriting our stories in Jesus. And here at this table, we declare that he is indeed the Son of Man, the Holy of Time, the Sacred of Space, and the one for whom we have been waiting. It is here at a table like this, with plain bread and non-alcoholic wine, where healing begins. It's here where our story begins to be rescripted. And I want to invite you to participate. I want to remind you of the story that on the night before Jesus was betrayed by those he came to save, he took the bread and he held it up and he gave thanks and then he broke it and he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Whenever you eat it, I want you to remember me. And then after supper, he held up the cup and he said, this is the new covenant The cup represents the new covenant that comes in my blood, and whenever you do this, I want you to do so in affectionate remembrance of me. 
I want to remind you that this is Jesus' table, and all who are open to this good work of God in Christ are welcome. Coming to this table is how we anticipate that our script is being rewritten. It is found in a new and a good story. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. And this is a story that is for you. So I'd like to invite you to trust this God in Christ who wants to rescript your story. And I want you to begin trusting now. Trust him because he can do it. Put down your tragedy. Receive his love. Allow him to turn it into a, into a comedy. Receive his forgiveness. And come to this table and receive his healing. It is the Lord's day. It is a holy day. Here in this temple, this sacred space, receive him as your Lord and celebrate the new story that he is writing for you. I want to invite you to come down our center aisle with our hands cupped, ready to receive that which is good and that which comes from God. Here we do not take communion. The story that is being rewritten for us is a gift. So allow these to serve you. Listen to what they have to say. Dip the bread into the cup and then eat it. We want you to know that this is for everyone who is open. This new beginning is for everyone who is open to this good work of God in Christ. Healing is available to you. So come with your hands cupped. If for any reason you cannot come down our aisle or you need assistance, please just wave to my friend Justin over here and he will bring the elements to you. Friends, your story can be rescripted starting now. So I invite you to come when you are ready.